Welcome to Saints and Sinners Unplugged. I am Pastor Ken Jones, and I am joined by two, at least, of our regular co-hosts. We have Pastor David Menendez and Pastor Aldo Leon, and we're joined by a, well, I don't know where Jose is. This is a new year, and I don't know if he's been raptured away or... What? Yeah, he was in a nightclub when the rapture happened. <laughs> he, he walked with the Lord, and then he was taken. <laughs> so, in other words, he picked the right club to be in, and obviously we didn't, so we we're left here, and we have we had to find someone else who hadn't been raptured. So we are joined by a friend of the program, uh, Pastor Mike Hernandez, who was an ordained minister in the PCA Church. So, welcome to Saints and Sinners. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, uh, what we want to do, uh, and by the way, again, for those who are first-time listeners, we are local pastors here in the South Miami area. We get together each week at this time to discuss various aspects of reformational theology, those things either historically or uh, in a historical context, or some of the challenges to uh, the gospel of grace as we experience it today and the importance of, of uh, doctrine as it relates to our worship as well as defining our Christian life. Now what we have, we, we started before we, we took a break for our Advent discussions, we had started a discussion on uh, confessions. And I want to back up a little bit because confessions obviously serve a, a, a very uh, important function in the life of the church, denominationally, as well as in the life of the local church. But before we get into the broader confessional formulas, I thought it would be helpful to make a case for confessions by discussing some of the creeds. Now, the word creed uh, is taken from the Latin word credo, which simply means I believe. And I don't know about you guys, but I know in my church upbringing, uh, Creeds really didn't play a part in in our church life, and then as we as I got older, uh, you'd hear things like you know when you talk about the Apostles' Creed, it was always presented as if well that's Catholic, and uh, it wasn't until I really came to understand um, historic Protestantism that I understood the importance of creeds and first off what they were and that they weren't necessarily a bad word. Uh, in, in fact, they are very helpful. And as we got into it, uh, there's for those who are interested in this subject, there's a great book that was written, oh boy, I want to go back to probably 90s, by Mark Knoll, a great church historian, and it's called uh, Creeds, Confessions, and Catechisms of the Reformation. And in that book, he gives an overview of some of the uh, creeds and the history behind them, and it contains most of the uh, major <laughs> Protestant creeds, beginning with the uh, Augsburg Confession, the 39 Articles for the Church of England, and so forth. So if you're interested in, in uh, this, this topic, that would be a great place to uh, continue or to get uh, more information on it. So as we begin our discussion, what I want to begin with is to talk about creeds themselves. Before we, we look at some of the ecumenical creeds and the controversies that, um, that led to those formulations, um, the question I, I would ask is, can we make a biblical case for creedal or confessional formulas? Because one of the arguments against strict biblicists 
is that, well, there are no creeds or confessions in the Bible. I just believe in the Bible. And I've often said that most of the madmen who have walked across the stage of human history also believed in the Bible. The question is, what do we believe the Bible teaches? So can we make a case for creeds or uh, confessional statements? And by confession, what we mean is the, the body of truth that we confess together as defining our grasp of the faith. Is, is it a biblical idea? Yes. Uh, yes? Is, is, it a, is it a biblical construct is, well, is the question. I, I, I would say that in the Bible itself you have statements that would make a case for the need for interpretation, teaching, that not as just regurgitating and just parroting scripture, mm -hmm. but applying, interpreting, arguing, clarifying scripture. So, you know, Ephesians 4 says he gave us, you know, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teaching for the equipping of the saints and all, all these, there is, there is within, the, within the scriptures themselves a category for the need for people to be progressively explaining, interpreting, applying, arguing the text of scripture, not just um, and and what you say that makes sense. Yeah, well, and and the reasoning from the scriptures. In other words, uh, certain certain foundational statements, uh, such as in the in the uh, Old Testament, uh, we have what is called the Hebrew Shema, which is uh, "Behold, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God." Uh, one could even make that claim about the the preamble to the um, to the Ten Commandments. But of course, in the uh, Old Testament, in the Torah, you have you actually have the Mosaic Law, and that was the basis of, of catechesis uh, for the, the children and and for the nation. But if we move into the New Testament, uh, and and I want to interact with at least three passages, three fairly familiar passages. One is Philippians two, verses six through eleven which has been called the kenotic hymn. And the reason it's called kenotic hymn, taken from the Greek kenosis, which means to empty, and, and some take that to mean that this is a statement of Jesus um, emptying himself of his glory. And of course, we don't mean that he divests himself, and that's one of the reasons that's a good place to start, is because some have, even in the first century, misunderstood Paul as saying that Christ lay aside, lays aside his deity. Right. Okay, so would someone have that? Can, can we read it? Yeah. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. Yeah, I'll take that on. Um, so uh, Philippians 2, 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, of course, Paul doesn't say... <clears throat> At that point, when he when he cites that, he doesn't say, "Well, this is you know this is a creed," you know, and but and some have argued that it could either be a hymn, 
which was popular or that was used in the early church, or it is a creedal statement, which is a summary of 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 um, the, of Christ of the incarnation. It's a and, and in 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 that case, it would be an articulation of what John says in John chapter one that the Word became flesh. And it, so it, it, it is grounded in a particular understanding about the person of Christ, which is that he was eternal God and that he voluntarily gave up his position as, or not his position, but that he voluntarily took on humanity and all of the, all of the things that are associated with, with humanity outside of sin in our place. And in doing so, he made himself subject to the law. Paul also says in um, in Galatians that he beca- he took on flesh and put himself under the law for those who are under the law. Made himself subject to the law for those who are under the law. So that's the idea, and and uh, that that's captured in that passage. It's a it's a statement of what is commonly taught or what was taught by the apostles and an articulation and an interpretation of Jesus actually becoming humanity. Yeah, I would say, um, Ken, if I could just jump in, say, mm-hmm. you know, I think, um, I, and I get that whole thing about no creed but the Bible. Right. You know, I don't find creeds in the Bible. There's nothing explicit saying that. Um, but if we're going to approach this text honestly, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, it, it, it essentially forces, just the nature of the text forces you to say that it is creedal. Right. Why, and if you think, why? Well, because creeds by nature are unifying, mm-hmm. where confessions are divisive by nature because they're more denominational, mm-hmm. right? Um, and by the way, all div- division is not unhealthy. Right. It's, yeah, yes. right. It's, it's a healthy divisiveness, if yeah. you will. Right? Defining. Uh, defining. Right. Defining, yeah. right? It, 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 it demarcates <coughs> distinctives, mm-hmm. right? And so you, you, you look at this text and say, well, if you can't get around this, being creedal in nature, if you can't get around the unifying facts that Paul's stating here, mm-hmm. um, then not only do you have an issue with creeds, but yeah. um, you either you end up with heterodoxy mm. or heresy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and 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 one of the things that that he does because the the, the reason that he mentions this at this point, in fact, the the verses prior to that, he says in verse five, "Let this mind be in you." So what he's doing is admonishing believers to com- put to put themselves in submission to the the good or welfare of others, and the example that he gives is Christ Himself in the incarnation, and so he's not even introducing this as a new doctrine. He is building on what is the assumed doctrine of the of, of the apostles and of the New Testament Church, and he's reasoning from the church's collective uh, conviction concerning the incarnation as the basis to uh, exhort, encourage individual believers and, to, and to unify, follow that example. And yeah, unify, to unify. Which is, which is a big deal in the Philippian, in the Philippian letter, right? Right. Uh, let this, the same mind be among you, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, Euodia and Syntyche having, hey, agree in the Lord, right? And so it's not only um, the... The, that Paul is concerned, it's a, it's a motif in, in Philippians being unity, but you know you need unifying statements. Yes. And I think that's what Philippians 2, 6 through 11 does. Here. A- exactly. And so in that statement, he identifies Christ as being preexistent 
and co-equal with the father who voluntarily lays aside his privilege and takes on human flesh and obeys the will of the father even to the point of death. And as such, the father has rewarded him and has given him a name above all other names. And so, I mean, within that statement, even though Paul is using it almost as an aside, he is establishing a, a very central doctrine sure. in the Christian faith. Yeah. yeah, yeah. he's actually, as he deals with the practical issue of division and all that and unity, then he goes back to the essential articulation. So this is what... Um, it's the essence of our faith. Yes. So there are certain things that are important in the faith, but some are foundational and essential that we need to preserve and pass on down and base the practice of our faith upon. Yes. Yeah. yeah so, so again, this this um, this hymn, as people have called it, and it's it's not clear whether it was a hymn that was sung, or it could have been a creedal hymn that was sung with the the very intention of of passing on that which was articulated by the apostles and established as a uh, defining mark of orthodox christianity because if you take that out in other words if you just have verses one through four and take out uh the doctrine of christ mm -hmm. then what you have is just a lot of exhortations that could be philosophical it could be existential it could be psychological sure. it could be relational sure but that does not define who we are right exactly yeah, yeah. but but again here especially here the assumption is that these are truths that are already universally held by the church. Right, right, right. Okay. Now, another place is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, does anyone have that? 1 Timothy 3, 16. And it's similar. And, and again, people have argued that it may have been uh, a hymn that was sung in the church. But more than likely, and especially the way Paul uses it, it seems as if this was a, a codifying statement of what was pre, what was uni, um, universally understood within the New Testament church. So I'll, I'll be full-time scripture reader. <laughs> sure, there we go. yeah, yeah right. that's, that's Jose's job. So <laughs> okay, there we go. Sitting here. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Yeah, I mean, again, same thing, yeah, right? Don't get clearer than that. Wow, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the mystery of godliness, you know, you you would think that he would start talking about, you know, what we do in our behavior, morality, yeah, morality. Right. But then yeah. he addresses the person of Christ. Mm -hmm. So even with that very statement, mystery of godliness, yeah. if we extract, because obviously he's not talking about morality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What he's talking about is the mystery of God's grace mm -hmm. in the giving. Of the gospel, right. hmm. so it's it's a mystery. It's it it goes back to right. something else that Paul says in Ephesians when speaking of of the gospel that he is able to do that which is exceedingly and abundantly above all that which we are able to imagine or to think, hmm. and so here is the mystery of God's saving grace in the gospel. In First Corinthians, he talks about the wisdom of God being foolishness uh, or the, the message of the cross being foolishness to those who are perish or who are perishing well here's why it looks foolish because this is what the mystery of god's saving grace to fallen humanity is that he was given 
you know, in the flesh, and and so that and that he was believed upon. You know, so so all of the the, the elements that Paul addresses there, he says these are the actions of God. So by godliness, it speaks of the actions of God, and not the morality of man. Right. It sounds like a, an imperative, but it's an indicative. Exactly. Yeah. 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 There's no imperative there at all. Right. At all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but but again, what what Paul is doing hmm. in that instance? That's interesting. Is repeating. And the, a creed then? Yes. It's just something we believe. Yes. It's not something right. that right. we are yeah. called to do. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's what we believe collectively as mm-hmm. a church body. So when mm-hmm. it says, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, this is what it's not, you know, when I, it's, it's I become a part of the collective whole. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what we confess yeah. together. Yeah. I think I think also it's helpful to uh, see creeds as organizing all of Scripture in light of the author of Scripture being the starting point of everything. So... We understand scripture, everything in scripture, in light of God being the Alpha and the Omega, the starting point. So who God is and what he does is what unites scripture. It's what how we understand scripture. And I think one of the reasons why creeds happen is, the, is that the heretics would want to just take Bible verses and not understand them from the God theological center. Right. And so they would read this and read that and say this and say that. And they said, this is what the text says. This is what the text says. This is what the text says. And the creeds would be like, actually, every everything in Scripture needs to be understood from the character, essence, and attributes and actions of God in Scripture, which helps us understand everything in Scripture because God is a unifying point, right? Um, scripture is not a bunch of discombobulated facts that we kind of work our way up to God. God is the cohesive understanding, the center of Scripture, and so we understand everything, all the details, all the words, all the in light of God Himself, His essence, His actions, His attributes. He's the cohesive center of everything. Well, and 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 that especially is true as it relates to the formulation of confessions. But one of the things that is characteristic of the creeds, even the creedal formulas that we've looked at thus far. And I think that's also true of the ecumenical creeds. And that is these are, once we have the historical fact of Jesus of Nazareth, the creeds articulate what we know or what we believe about this Jesus. Mm -hmm. So to go back to to Philippians, that he preexisted co-equal with God the Father and voluntarily condescended to become man. Well, that's also captured here in First First Timothy that he was manifested. See, great is the mystery of God. It is a mystery to say that eternal God became finite man. So he was manifested, and to, to manifest is to reveal. He was revealed in the flesh. He really became flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. And, and of course, uh, if we know what is articulated explicitly in the New Testament, we see Jesus being uh, anointed by the Spirit at his baptism. Yeah. We, we, we are told that even in his conception, he was conceived of by the Spirit. Right. Would you say also as far as creeds that not only is it the unifying force, but also like the entry point? Like if you're going to be baptized, 
if you're going to become sure. part of the church. Well, this sure. is what we believe. Exactly. And notice there is just for you-ness yes. in the creed. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just an abstract discussion of the Trinity or just dealing right. with a particular doctrine, but this is what this is for you. Yes. So this defines you, this sustains you, this you know gives you entry into the new community of the faith. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. if I could even piggyback off David here. I think, I think you hit on something interesting. You know that, um, that creedal formulas are intensely personal. Yeah. Mm. They might sound abstract, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the fact that even as we look at um, at First Timothy three, yeah, um, you you get the Trinitarian formula, right, right, right here. I know. Right. So mm-hmm. a mystery of godliness. Mm-hmm. He, God put on flesh yeah. and was vindicated by the spirit you get this trinitarian yes. the trinitarian nature of of the of of the creedal formula and what what that tells us is it's like you said the for you yeah, yeah. it's intensely personal and so it's not just informational yeah. right it's formational exactly it's not yes. like hey don't Great. know more yeah become more yes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's it, and obviously the christian faith is more than that but it's no less than no this. less than that precisely <laughs> and, and this is right. that's why it's it's the entry point <laughs> hmm. uh and and it's interesting when we talk about the entry point into the faith I've often said this, and sometimes people misunderstand it, but a Christian is first and foremost not defined by their behavior. A Christian is first and foremost defined by their belief. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And creeds, to yeah. begin with, and obviously confessions follow from that, articulate what it is that we believe. Well, let me, well, you, I, I obviously I agree with what you just said, but how would you, address the rebuttal to what you just said that Christians are mainly defined by firstly by what they believe not what they do behaviorally how would you respond to somebody saying well there's a lot of things in scripture that say Christians are known by said to do X Y and Z all over scripture so how can you say well but that's, how, how can you say that if there's a lot of things about that say you know for example you know uh, people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another, like, and they would they would counteract that statement with something like that. Like, how would you respond? But that's not what defines them. Those yeah. those statements, we don't. One does not negate the other. Right. Christians ought to conduct themselves yeah. in a in a number of ways that are different from those uh, from the behavior of unbelievers. Paul says in Ephesians five that being therefore children of God, uh, be imitators of God as as children of God. And then he goes on to admonish in terms of what of of their walk. But he begins Ephesians yeah. by saying, you have been chosen in him since before the foundation of the world. Yeah. Uh, same thing in Colossians. In Colossians 3, he mm. tells them to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But Colossians 1 begins by saying that you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his light. You have been made to be partakers of or, or of, of God. You have been made the, the, the children of inheritance. You have redemption through Christ. So all of those indicatives are what define us yeah. and the imperatives or the, uh, the the characteristics of our behavior flow from that. Yeah, I well, find it interesting that Peter says uh, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In the day of yeah. visitation. Yeah. So that day of visitation reveals the defining things of who we are. Yes. In other words, anybody could see us just doing a good work and not have a clue who we are. 
Right. However, that good work flows from who we are, and it is what reveals us in a way, justifies us in the world sure. to those that see our works. However, that, that is just flowing from the intrinsic identity of who we are by faith. Yes. So I don't think it should undermine the fact no. that, you know, those statements in which we are known by our love, Abs- um, you know, definitely. And we should. And, and, and we should, yeah. And, and by the way, as the people of God, when we don't walk in love, that we are built into a covenant community where there is rebuke, where there are where there are confrontations, loving confrontations, exhortations, and there are actions that take place to to confront a person who is not walking consistent with who we are in Christ. Yeah. But that's not what defines us. Yeah. And I, and I would say too is that if our actions are what define us, then you're only as good as a particular moment, a particular week, because your actions are always inconsistent. We, we, at the same time we're lovers, we, we can quickly become haters. At the same time we're yep. worshipers, we are idolaters. Um, you know, we're, we're up and down. So if you're defined by behavior, you basically have a lifetime, lifetime identity crisis. Yes. Because that's just very shaky. But, but if, if behavior is, is not what grounds you, but, but um, well, how about this? Your behavior doesn't ground you, but the behavior of Christ right. mm-hmm. well, and, defines you. Then you, you always have a sense of identity because it's not built on something that's so inconsistent. We, yeah, and we have that towards God. You know, yes. It's sort of like, you know, my neighbor does not need my identity. Right. In, in faith, he needs <laughs> yeah. my works. Yes. So definitely it defines the store God, but we're known to neighbor and, and, in and the works. And of, there's gonna be a, there's gonna be a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. If we are defined by our works, then we can't just focus on the iceberg tip of our works. We've got to look down at the foundation of it. And if you think that your works are good by themselves and they are therefore that's what gives you a right standing before god if you look at the the foundation of it then you'll see that even your good works are not good enough if they are apart from christ and so it is our belief in christ that makes our works good because they are filtered through christ Well, that's all the time we have today. We will continue this discussion. I want to talk about another creedal formula that we find in scriptures that oftentimes are not is not identified as such, but I think it is as we pick up our uh, this discussion next week on Saints and Sinners Unplugged. We look forward to here uh, to being with you again next week. Thank you.